congregation, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has three offices. It's especially the name Christ that indicates that, because the name Christ means that he is the anointed one, anointed by God the Father to be our prophet, to be our priest, and to be our king. It's actually remarkable that even on the cross, we see the manifestation of the three offices of Christ. Because the focus, of course, of his sacrifice on the cross is especially on his priestly ministry. It is as our high priest that he gives himself to be the perfect sacrifice for sin, that perfect sacrifice of which the apostle writes in Hebrews 10, that with one sacrifice he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. But as we pointed out last week, that on the cross he also functions as our prophet, because remarkably... Christ did not remain silent even on the cross. There would have been every reason from a human perspective that given the intense pain and the intense agony of the crucifixion, that the Savior would have remained silent on the cross of Calvary. But he was not. Out of love, for the multitude that stood around him, but also out of love for us, He opened his mouth even on the cross, even though every time he did so, he did so with excruciating pain and with excruciating discomfort. And there we see his prophetic ministry. So our high priest, who is nailed to the cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, he opens his mouth to minister to us even today. But we even, as we will see today, we even get a glimpse of his royalty, of his kingly office. Because as we will see this morning, this thief, when he begins to speak, it's very clear from the language he uses that he recognizes this crucified, bleeding, dying Savior, ultimately to be the Messiah. And he honors him also as king. And so we see all three offices of Christ manifested on the cross. And so this morning, with God's help, we will consider the second word of the cross, the second utterance, which we find recorded in verse 43 of the chapter we read to you. And there we read God's word in our text. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So three simple thoughts. Again, follow me closely. First of all, we will consider the object of this utterance. Who is the him that Christ addresses, Jesus said unto him. And the reason we will focus on that is we will see what an utterly marvelous display we have here of the sovereign, distinguishing, unconditional grace of God. 
So the object of this utterance, the thief, this robber. Secondly, the amazing content of this utterance. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And we will also see the wonder of this utterance. Because we will see a powerful display of how the grace of God literally made a difference where there was none. That's why we began our scripture reading again to remind us that it wasn't just one malefactor who was nailed to the cross besides Jesus. There were two malefactors, one on either side. And yet, it's only one of the two who hears out of the mouth of Christ in response to his petition that he would be with him in paradise. So the object of this utterance the content of this utterance, and also the wonder of this utterance. Congregation, in my first point, I want to point out four things about this man to whom Jesus said this. First of all, we will see that he was the most unlikely candidate to be a trophy of God's mercy. Secondly, we will see that this man... This man responded to the gospel that Christ had just uttered in his first petition. Because ultimately, that was gospel when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thirdly, we will see that this was a man who confessed his faith in a crucified Jesus. And fourthly, that this was a man who put his trust in Christ alone. Lord, remember me. So first of all, he was the most unlikely candidate to be a trophy of God's sovereign mercy. We don't know much about this man, but what we know about him is not very good. We know that he was a thief. He know that he was a robber. He was probably uh, a companion of Barabbas. Barabbas, who was also had been destined to be crucified. But Barabbas, who was literally set free because Christ took his place and was nailed to the cross that was intended for Barabbas. And most likely, these men were political terrorists. They were insurrectionists. And the reason they had been captured and were, had been condemned to die on the cross is because they probably were trying to foment a rebellion against the Roman government. And in the process, they robbed and even killed. And so this man, just like his companion and Barabbas, this man had a very dismal criminal record. He was the very last person we would have ever expected to become a recipient of the grace of God. But also consider the very unfavorable circumstances of this moment. I mean, everything you would say, everything conspired against anyone actually coming to faith in Christ. What a dark hour it was. There was the Son of God nailed to the cross. He was treated like a criminal. 
And surrounded by a jeering crowd, surrounded by the ungodly leaders of the people of Israel who were taunting him, who were mocking with him. Oh, a crucifixion was a gruesome event. But then also what the Scriptures say about the deep depravity of the heart of this man. What do we read in Matthew 27 verse 44? The thieves, plural, also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Just think about the depravity of this. These men, too, had been nailed to the cross. And yet, even though they were nailed to the cross, they opened their mouths and they reviled the Lord Jesus Christ, they joined the wicked multitude in reviling this precious Christ nailed in the middle. And he, he participated in this. And in Mark 15, verse 32, we read the very same thing. It says, and they that were crucified with him reviled him. Peter was probably thinking of this when he writes in his epistle when he writes that when he was reviled, Jesus reviled not again. And that's so amazing about the utterances of Christ on the cross. He reviled not again. He did not respond to the wickedness that came out of the mouths of these men. And so these men, both of them, they were hell-deserving. They were not worthy of being considered to enter paradise, as we will see in a moment. Christ promises this man that he would enter into paradise. They were hell-deserving. They were deserving that God's wrath would be manifested towards them. And so we read in verse 39... We read what they were saying. It says, and because it tells us what one of the malefactors said. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. And then congregation, then comes a dramatic change. A dramatic change that is introduced by that simple word, but. A congregation, if you pay attention there are many times in Scripture where that little word but is of profound significance, profound importance. The late Dr. Sproul was so impressed by that little word but that he had a lady embroider that word but for him and he put it in a very prominent place in his study to be reminded of what that word implies. Because that word but also in our text has been rightly called the hinge on which the whole gospel turns. It is the butt of God's good pleasure. It is the butt of God's amazing grace. We find numerous examples. Let me just mention two of them. Think of Psalm 130, where the psalmist says, Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquity, who shall stand? Lord, if thou wouldst hold me accountable for my sin, I cannot stand before thee. Which is what this thief will confess in a moment. But, he says, but with thee 
The very God against whom I have sinned, with thee, the God before whom I cannot stand, but with thee there is forgiveness that thou mayest be feared. The hinge of the gospel, the hinge on which the whole gospel turns. We could actually say that the, the word but summarizes in a way, it summarizes the content of the entire word of God. The entire word of God is God's response to our sin, to our wickedness. But God, Paul says in Romans, but God who is great in mercy. When he introduces that chapter, of course, in chapter 2, when he begins by saying to the Ephesians, you once were dead in sins and trespasses, but God who is rich in mercy. And dear believer... Dear child of God, that's the story of your life. But, but God, but God dealt with you. Sovereignly, he dealt with you, just like happened here. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, there comes a dramatic change. This man who had been reviling Christ, this man who had been displaying such utter depravity. And by the way, I hope we all realize that the depravity manifested by these men is ultimately the depravity that is found in every human heart by nature. Because we should not think that those who surrounded Christ and who demanded his crucifixion and who were reviling him, that they were more depraved than we are. No, by nature, this is really our story. By nature, we are that depraved. And that's really what the cross highlights. In a sense, the cross brought out the very worst in man. The cross provoked the worst demonstration of human wickedness and human depravity. And yet, as we will see, against that awful background... The cross becomes the display of the amazing and the astounding grace of God also manifested towards this man. But the other answering rebuked him saying, and I want you to follow carefully. A.W. Pink in his wonderful exposition of these words on the cross, he actually highlights seven distinct marks Seven distinct evidences of the dramatic change that takes place in the life of this man. Listen to what this reviler suddenly says. To his other reviler, to his companion, he said, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly? So what suddenly happened here? congregation. Boys and girls, what suddenly happened? I'll tell you what happened. Suddenly, God became real to this man. Suddenly, the scales fell from his eyes. Suddenly, a dramatic change took place inside the heart of this man. There is no other explanation for it. No other explanation as to why this man under these circumstances, would utter such amazing words. And so what happened here, congregation, is that Christ's answer 
or Christ's petition, rather. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That petition was answered immediately. And it was answered immediately by the Spirit of Christ taking hold of that man. Because what happened here is the result of a supernatural miracle that cannot be explained in any other way. The Holy Spirit made this man spiritually alive. And now all of a sudden, when he, now he has been awakened. He has been awakened to who he is. He has been awakened to the reality of his circumstances. And suddenly this ungodly man, this reviler, he becomes a man who fears God. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God does not mean to be afraid of God. But to fear God in the Bible means that we take God seriously. That we honor him for who he is. And that's what happened here. Suddenly this man begins to take God seriously. That always happens, congregation. That is the, always the first evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so let me add at this point, the conversion of this thief in a, in a sense is unique. A very unique situation. But the evidences of the Holy Spirit's work are not unique. They are common to every conversion. Because when the Spirit of God makes us alive, spiritually alive, then God becomes real. Then His Word becomes real. His law becomes real. And my plight as a sinner becomes real. This became very real to this man. And that's why when, he, when it dawned on him who he was in the sight of God, it dawned on him that his other companion on the other side was in the same predicament that he was. And he said, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, and we receive the due reward of our deeds. Notice, that this man recognizes that as a sinner, he deserves what he is getting. He acknowledges that because he is a sinner, he is worthy of condemnation. Notice how he, how he emphasizes and includes himself. He said, we are getting what we deserve. What is happening to us is the just reward upon our sins. So not only does God become real to him, but he acknowledges that the nature of his sin is such that he is worthy of condemnation, that he is worthy of what he is experiencing here on the cross. A congregation, we will never value the Christ on the cross we will never value what he accomplished on the cross until that becomes real. And I'm not here promoting a certain measure or a certain intensity. 
But if that has never become real to us, why would we ever need this Christ? Why would we ever need a crucified Christ? Why would we ever need a Christ who gave himself as a ransom for sin? Why would we desire a Christ who was made a curse in our place? Unless in some measure we understand who we are in the sight of God. Unless... We, be, we learn to confess before God precisely what David did in Psalm 130. Lord, if thou shouldst mark my transgression, if thou wouldst mark my iniquity, then I, ha- I cannot stand before thee. But also notice what he says about Christ. He says, but this man has done nothing amiss. That was a remarkable statement. That was a bold and courageous statement. By that statement, he actually, he condemned the entire multitude. The entire multitude that stood there demanding the crucifixion of Christ. And so he, he affirmed what, what Pilate had to affirm. What Pilate's wife had to affirm. He affirmed here the absolute innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God saw to it that that innocence was affirmed. And of course, congregation, that is an essential component of the gospel, is that we have a mediator who did nothing amiss. We have a mediator who was sinless, who was the Holy One of Israel. Because if that had not been the case, he would have been disqualified as a Savior. The reason he could be our savior, the reason he could be our substitute is because he did do nothing amiss. He was sinless. He was holy. He was harmless. And this man, his eyes have gone open. And this is, as I said, this can only be explained by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that enabled that man to perceive in one moment, as it were, what no one else saw. And so Christ, in his person, became very, very real to that man. Now, some, some commentators suggest that this man never had an opportunity to demonstrate by the fruits of his life that his faith and that his conversion was real. And yet I would challenge that congregation because... What does this man do? Once it dawns on him the plight that he is in, once he realizes that he has provoked God by his sins and that he is under condemnation and that he justly deserves to perish because of his sin, he realizes that his companion, his partner in crime, is in the very same predicament that he is in. And so what he's actually doing at the cross, he is evangelizing. He is evangelizing his perishing friend. Suddenly, his own burden becomes the burden of his friend. A congregation, that's how God still works. When God deals with us, then suddenly we become aware of the needs of our loved ones. 
A husband will be burdened for his wife, a wife will be burdened for her husband. Parents will be burdened for their children. That we realize what predicament our children, our friends, our colleagues are if they are not in Christ. That's what happened here. And so, not only did he take God seriously, but he demonstrated that he had love for his partner in crime. He has love for his friend. And he warns him, lovingly, he warns him, because for him to speak was painful as well. But that burden was so intense that he could not remain silent. And after he lovingly warns, then he turns to Jesus. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Amazing. This man saw what others did not see. Others were blind to the reality of who this Jesus was. But by the, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, this man recognized who he was. He saw beauty. He saw preciousness in a crucified Jesus. Oh, the circumstances conspired totally against it. When Isaiah 53 prophesied that we would see no beauty in him that we should desire him, there was absolutely nothing about Jesus that was attractive. And yet this man saw in Christ who he really was. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. And so the reason the Holy Spirit convicted this man, opened his blind eyes, had but one purpose, and that is what to get his attention for the person who hung next to him, to direct his attention to this crucified Jesus. And remarkably, he confesses him to be who he really was. And he addresses him, of all things, he addresses him as Lord. That's remarkable. Lord. Paul writes later that no man can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So it is the Holy Spirit who made him realize who this was. And actually, he's confessing him to be the Messiah. His faith is so remarkable that he believes at this moment that this bleeding and dying Christ that hangs next to him, that he will be exalted ultimately. He believes that his kingdom will come. He says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. So again, to the whole multitude that is gathered around him, not only does he confess that he has done nothing amiss, but he openly confesses that he believes that this man whom they have nailed to the cross is ultimately the Messiah. But he also believes him to be who he is, namely, the Savior of sinners. Because he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What a, a simple petition congregation. Lord, remember me. And if you would ask me today, Pastor, 
What should I be praying? What must I do to be saved? Then I would say to you, it's as simple as this petition. That petition says everything. Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. A wretched malefactor. Remember me in spite of my criminal record. Remember me in spite of all the wickedness that I have done. Lord, remember me in spite of the fact that I even reviled thy name. Oh, this man knew he had nothing to show for. His whole life testified against him. And yet, his heart was drawn to that crucified Christ. That was, the, that was the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit, you see, when, when He works in our hearts, congregation, he, he so labors until we look to Christ, until we focus on Him, until we come to that same place where we realize that my only hope is in such a Christ. And then the petition is so very, very simple. It reminds us of the simple petition of the publican in the temple. What a simple prayer that was. You know how the Pharisee went in there boastfully and arrogantly, boasted of all his uh, credentials, and what an abominable quote-unquote prayer that was. And there is this publican, a publican smiting on his breast, who did not even dare to lift up his eyes. A publican who was as aware of God as this man was. And all he could utter, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's precisely the thrust of that petition. Lord, remember me. Lord, have mercy upon me. Ah, you see, His soul was drawn to this Christ. I've said this before, but here you see a beautiful illustration. It's when the Holy Spirit quickens us and makes us alive. He so works that Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, becomes irresistibly attractive to our soul. That our hearts will be drawn to Him. And so it was here with this thief. And so Christ's petition was answered immediately. Can you imagine the joy that filled the heart of this crucified Christ when he heard that petition coming from the lips of that malefactor? Here was an immediate fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. Christ saw, literally, the travail of his soul. He experienced, in the midst of his suffering, what the ultimate result would be of that suffering, because not only would this be to the salvation of this malefactor, what he was doing on the cross would be ultimately to the salvation of an innumerable multitude of sinful men and women. And of course, ultimately, dear believer, the fact that you are a believer today is because that prayer, as I pointed out last week, that prayer continues to be answered. 
And so you too have been wrought upon by that very same spirit. Not because you were deserving of it. This man was not deserving of it. He was equally guilty. He was equally criminal in what he did. He had an equal record to this other companion. And yet we see that God sovereignly makes a difference where there was no difference at all. And what's so encouraging, and I agree with many commentators, that this is one of those, the most dramatic illustrations in all of Scripture of how amazing the grace of God is. Because what this tells us not only of how the Spirit leads us to Christ, but it tells us and it instructs us how Christ responds to such a petition. And he responds immediately without delay. And what an encouragement it is for us today. If there's anything that Satan would love to blind you for, is that God will not hear your petition. But I can assure you that what we see here is still true. There is nothing that Christ delights to hear more as to hear from a sinner on their knees and say, Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, be gracious unto me. And so, congregation, boys and girls, let that encourage you today. Let that encourage you today to do likewise, to bow your knees and to cry out to that same Christ who is now the exalted Christ at the Father's right hand, but it's the same Christ. And to say, Lord, remember me. Remember a sinner like I am. And Jesus said unto him, said unto him immediately at once, Again, forgetting his own pain and forgetting his own comfort, being filled with joy to hear that petition come from that man as the evidence of his own work by the Spirit in the heart of that man. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Remarkable congregation that Christ uses that word. It's only used a few times in Scripture. In Revelation, we read about the paradise of God. This word is not a Greek word, it's not a Hebrew word, it comes from the Persian language. And it means a, a beautiful garden. You know what Christ is doing here in this brief statement? He's taking us all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, where our first parents had the privilege of living in paradise. That was their original habitation. The boys and girls, what happened to Adam and Eve? What happened to them when they rebelled against God, when they sinned against God, when they despised the love of God, when they treated God as a liar? What happened to them? They were banished from paradise. They were expelled from paradise. Paradise was that special place. God created this beautiful earth. 
But there was this special place, this special sanctuary, this special place where God would meet with them and commune with them and reveal His love to them. And then when they sinned, they had to be expelled. They had to be banished. And we became an outcast. But now the Lord Jesus, in this brief response, this remarkable response, immediately gives us an insight into the very purpose for which he was suffering and dying. And Christ clearly teaches us that his overarching goal is to bring us back to paradise, to restore what has been ruined and been broken through sin. Oh, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It was very clear that that simple petition was an exercise of faith. By that simple petition, this man believed in this bleeding and dying Christ. And what this teaches us, how pleased Christ is with that simple exercise of faith. Because what that is, you see, the reason why, why God responds so graciously to the exercise of faith, the very reason why Jesus said about that publican that that man went home justified upon that simple petition, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He went home justified. And that's what happens here. This man is justified on the spot. The moment he exercises faith, the moment he cries out to him, Lord, remember me, Christ responds immediately. And he's basically saying to this man, your request is granted. I will remember you. Or we could say here, that Christ, as it were, in spite of all his pain and suffering, he could not refrain himself. And that simple petition, that simple exercise of faith opened the lips of the Savior, and he pours out his heart to this wicked man that is crying out for mercy, Lord, remember me. That's who Christ is. He loves to hear the cries of sinners. He delights to save. And you see, that simple exercise of faith so supremely honors God. You cannot honor God more than by believing in His Son. And that's why Jesus said, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whosoever. Here we see the whosoever of the gospel. Here we see an illustration. It does not matter how wicked we are. It does not matter how long we have sinned. It does not matter how deeply we have fallen. But if the vilest sinner cries out to him, Lord, remember me, Christ responds. And he will save such a sinner. That's why John Newton could never get over it until the end of his life. And he was amazed at the amazing grace of God. That's what we see here, the amazing grace of God. And so in Romans 10, verse 9, we read this. 
If thou shalt confess with the mouth, thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's what happened here, congregation. And I want you to notice how personal this, his word is. Christ didn't just say, verily I say today. No, verily I say unto thee. He doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding. And my dear congregation, let me state it again. That when the gospel is preached, it is preached to you. Not just to the whole congregation. When the gospel is preached, Christ is speaking to you. To you directly, personally, as if you were the only one in church. And Christ is saying to you, Sinner, if you believe in me, I will save you. I will redeem you. Christ is simply affirming what he said in John 6, 37. He that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out, even if it is a man as wicked as this man. This man with his dismal criminal record. And when he turned to him, he was in no wise cast out. Because that's who Christ is. And so Christ gives us here the goal of his redeeming work is to restore what was ruined as a result of the fall. And so we could say that his cross is the link between the original paradise and the paradise that is to come. And were it not for the cross, there would be no paradise. There would be no future. There would have been no future for this thief, for this robber. But the reason Christ could promise him paradise, that Christ could promise him that he would dwell forever in the presence of God, is because Christ was giving himself for this man. Christ knew that in order to save this man, he would have to descend into hell itself. In order for him to open to this man the gates of paradise, he knew that the door would be closed for him. That he was facing those three unspeakable hours of agony. When he was forsaken by his father and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer is, he was forsaken in order that there would be an open door for this robber and for this thief. He was forsaken in order that also for you, dear child of God, to pave for you the pathway into the paradise of God. And yet, my dear congregation, the fact that he promised him paradise was not the most precious part of the promise. Take a look at it again. Read carefully with me. What is the most beautiful part of that answer? He says, today shalt thou be with me, with me in paradise. That's it. That's it. You see, if you take that out of there, the promise really means nothing. But what makes paradise paradise, what makes the future for God's people so glorious is dear child of God, you will be with him. That's it. 
That's why, as you say, as you as you know, and I will say it often, that's why, and I love that when Rutherford said, Christ is heaven's heaven. It's Christ that makes heaven heaven. And what good news that must have been to this man. Because this crucified, bleeding Christ had become precious to him. His heart was drawn to him, and Jesus said, You will be with me in paradise, and it will happen today. Oh, for a true believer, a a heaven without Christ would ultimately be hell. Rutherford went so far that he made the extreme statement that he would rather be in hell with Christ than to be in heaven without him. That's extreme, but he's making a point, you see. Congregation, if you profess to be a believer, tell me, is that what you look forward to? Is that what you long for, to be with him? And Christ is not just telling this to the thief. But Christ is telling this to all of his people. He's telling this to every believer. He is saying, oh, you who have come to me, you who have trusted in me, you who have believed in me, you will once be with me in paradise. That's why in John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, that you may be also. That's it. And in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, he is praying, Lord, he's praying that those whom thou hast given me, that they may be where I am, that they may behold my glory. Thou shalt be with me. The congregation, what a contrast. But that's the beauty of the gospel. The contrast between Christ and that thief. And you see, you will never value that contrast. You will never marvel at that contrast until you have learned to see yourself the way God sees you. And when that becomes real and Christ becomes real, oh, how amazing that statement becomes. Thou with me. And actually in Greek, the word order in Greek is, purpose, is, is important because the Greek arrange their, their, their vocabulary in such a way that what is emphasized is placed up front, you see. And so in Greek, it literally says, today with me thou shalt be in paradise. The emphasis on with me. The contrast. The Savior. The creator of the universe. And this wretched man. And yet... Thou with me. Boys and girls, does that that remind you of one of the names of Christ? Is his name not Emmanuel? God with us. Thou with me. And he said it will happen today. Immediately. Today you will join me. We will be in paradise together. And again, of course, as we, and you've heard this many times before, this is one of the clearest proof in all of Scripture what happens the moment a believer dies. The moment we die, the moment we close our eyes, the moment we breathe our last breath, dear child of God, you will be instantly translated into the presence of Christ. 
The angels will carry your soul immediately into glory. And notice how confident Jesus is of the outcome. Today shalt thou be with me in Christ. He was so confident of the outcome of his suffering, so confident that he would succeed in doing the work the Father had given him to do, so confident that his Father would accept his sacrifice, that he could say with confidence to this man, thou shalt be with me in paradise. And now, dear child of God, that Christ is the exalted Christ at the Father's right hand, where he ever lives to make intercession for you. And that's the guarantee of your ultimate translation, because he is there. You shall once be there. You shall once be with him in paradise. And I hope you didn't overlook the word verily. Verily, that's how he begins. Jesus often introduced important statements with the word verily. And in Greek it's the word amen. So it shall be. Are you see? For this thief, what Jesus said to him was almost too good to be true. But Jesus swears by his own name. He said, verily, I assure you, you shall be with me in paradise. And that's why we need to hear the gospel over and over again. That's why we have the sacraments. Those are God's verilies by which he assures his children it is really, really true. Here, look at the physical evidence of my faithfulness. It is really true. Verily, thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so, congregation, I have woven my third point all through the sermon, the wonder of what's happening here. Christ's dying love for enemies. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. The second Adam, suffering and dying in order that sons and daughters of the first Adam could be readmitted into paradise itself where he will be. And what an illustration we have here of the sovereignty of God. What was the difference between those two men? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Equally wicked, equally vile, equally corrupt, equally guilty. They were, they were both, as one commentator says so beautifully, they were both as close to Christ as you possibly can be. But it absolutely had no effect on the other thief. On the contrary, he kept on reviling him. So wicked is man by nature. And there you can see that no matter how the gospel is preached, no matter how Christ is offered, as we seek to do here from this pulpit, Without the work of the Holy Spirit, it will fall on deaf ears. It did for that man. And so, boy, if by the grace of God you are a believer, it's not because you somehow were smart enough to believe the gospel. You somehow had a better insight. You are a believer today because God made a difference where there was no difference. That's why you are a believer today. That's why this man was saved. It was grace, the sovereign grace alone. 
Paul writes to the Ephesians, and you, you has he quickened, he says, who were dead in trespasses and sins, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Oh, how that ought to humble us very, very deeply. And yet, let us rejoice at this extraordinary illustration of the grace of God, this extraordinary demonstration of who Christ is, this extraordinary encouragement to all of us to take refuge to this Savior. If that Savior heard the cry of a man next to him under those circumstances, he will surely hear you. When you cry out to him, O Lord Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners, remember me, have mercy upon me. Because then the truth of his word is applicable also to you. Verily, sinner, you who have put your trust in me, you who have come to me, you who have taken hold of me, verily I say to you, you shall once be with me in paradise. But if you don't come to him, you will once be in hell. That is just as true. There is no other option. There is no third option. If you will not come to him, if you will not flee to him, if you don't believe in him, you shall be in hell. That's the dramatic contrast of the gospel. But be encouraged. Here is a Savior who died for hell-worthy sinners, just like this thief. Here is a Savior who proffers to you peace and pardon. Here is a Savior who, by means of this story, is saying to us again, I am Jesus Christ, and he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how indebted we are to Thee for the amazing gospel of Christ, illustrated also in this history. Oh, we thank Thee for this beautiful portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ, our bleeding and dying Savior, who saves to the uttermost those who come to Him, who saved this wretched man, who saved Him, when he cried out, Lord, remember me. Oh, may we do likewise. May we be encouraged by this history to do not only do it for the first time, but to do it again and again. That again and again we would bow our knees to this Christ and say, Lord, for thy sake, for the sake of thy finished and accomplished work, remember even me. Bless us the remainder of this day. Bless the instruction given to our children. And gather with us again this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.